This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to welcome uh, today as our speaker for the first uh, uh, first uh, seminar on the new colloquium we've begun on identity in South Asia. I'd like to welcome Dr. Frederick Gray. Dr. Gray is uh, scholar with the Carnegie Endowment of uh, International Peace in Washington, D.C. There we lead the project assessing U.S. and European policies towards Pakistan and works jointly with Ashley Tellis and George Perkovich. In particular, Dr. Gray focuses on the tension between stability and democratization in Pakistan, including challenges of sectarian conflict, Islamic political mobilization, and educational reform. Uh, by way of background, uh, Dr. Graham most recently served at the uh, French Embassy in, uh, in Islamabad. And before that, for four years, was, yes, he was for three years then, before that, for four years in Delhi, a director of uh, a think tank, Center for Social Sciences and Humanities. And he, of course, he's published uh, widely. Uh, most recently, he published uh, India, China, Russia, Intricacies of an Asian Triangle with uh, edited by him. So with that, um, and also in terms of um, educational background, Dr. Gray has an advanced degree from the uh, from the Paris Institute, I'm not very good at that, of Politics, and from the Graduate Institute of International Studies. So with that, uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Dosani. As uh, a small warning, as you have all noticed, English is not my mother language, and I tend to be okay when I start speaking and slightly decay as the lecture goes on. So if it really becomes ununderstandable, just let me know. What I'm going to speak about today is the limits of Islamization of Pakistan. I think it's a key question because there are a number of confusion as to what Islamization is to start with and what it means and the deep belief behind that leading to a number of ill sorts policies that here is a society which is almost inherently extremist or at least has the potential to become so because it is and and behind that there is this perception that there is sort of a continuity between uh, the face the uh, religious orthodoxy, conservatism, and therefore extremism, which is not at all the case. And what I would like to argue today is that precisely Islamization is in conflict to this perception and is in conflict with many of the identities in Pakistan. And that's where the actual conflict is rather than what the in the process just described. I know that speaking of the limits of Islamization today in Pakistan can look like a provocation because everybody has in mind what's going on in Waziristan with implication of course in, in Afghanistan or maybe could it be the other way around as well. I mean this is not the topic of today but there would be a lot to say about that. And <coughs> phenomena such as sectarianism or even extremism in Kashmir and places like that, supported by Pakistan. But precisely, each of these examples would be a good way to show that this is something which is different and which purpose is extremely different than what we usually imagine. It doesn't mean at the same time 
that what we usually associate with Islamization doesn't have a reality in the country. I mean, this is far from me the idea that saying that everything is fine and if people were just led to themselves, everything would be perfect. Every society, every single society generates its own extremism. Pakistan is, of course, no exception to that. It's sometimes, as you've always seen, uh, a little worse. What I mean by the limit of Islamization is simply that Islamization has not modified in depth the various identities that are in conflict in Pakistan. Is it ethnic, of course, national, or even religious, or even religious? Because what we're seeing through Islamization is an attempt to impose a particular brand of Islam over all sorts of tradition. I mean, we can refer to Sufism, of course, but other kinds, I mean, just simple day-to-day uh, -day practice. I don't want to intellectualize uh, the process too much because I believe that this is a mistake that we tend to do too systematically and which precisely at the end of it creates that kind of confusion that we see in, uh, in the common perception. Therefore, I will add, and I just repeat myself here, that there is no contradiction in between what I said and the fact that the Islamization process is at the core of the contradiction and identity conflict in Pakistan. Interestingly, it goes end to end with the absence of democracy and with a process that I've described at length in other work, which is the monopoly of power by one single group, which is not per se a social group, which is the Pakistani army. And this is where perhaps the Islamization process has been remarkably successful. In through, through a very simple argument, which is it's which has been advanced by the army, saying that this is us of the or the mullah, and therefore this argument, wherever you take from whatever angle you take it from, always leads you to the same conclusion. If you don't have the army in power, then you risk to have some form of extremism bringing in power with all the consequences that especially in America you're all keen to imagine starting with the molas with the, the finger on the uh, on the nuclear button. This is all rubbish, let me put it very simply. It doesn't have any meaning. What I want to say is the process of Islamization so far has remained extremely limited. No elected legislature has ever gone beyond the expression of the idea of the supremacy of the uh, of Islamic law. No Islamic, no elected legislature has somewhat passed a substantial uh, provision uh, in Israel. The only field in which Islamization has had an impact has been the private sphere, has been the law of the family, has been law regarding marriages, has been cut of conduct when it comes to individual. You have probably all heard about the added laws, for example. I mean, this is very much where it has been active. But it has never changed, and is not likely to change anytime soon, the nature of the regime. What I intend to do with you this morning is try to analyze some of the impact of these Islamization policies, but less from a constitutional uh, or legal point of view than from an economic, political, uh, point of view, with the consequences that it can have on the uh, social life of Pakistan as well. What I will argue is that this process reinforces 
more than it challenges the existing political and social order, and this is the very reason for its existence and its most salient political expression, the current military regime. And it does so how? It does so by preventing on the one side the emergence of any real alternative political project and also in a much more pragmatic manner by bringing back in mainstream politics, and that's perhaps the positive aspect of it, I'll describe it in detail later on, the fraction of the social body which could possibly be tempted by more radical means of action. So what I will do this morning is essentially forcing. Look at the evolution of the role of the religious movement and parties within the Pakistani state. And I think that this is a phenomenon which is quite interesting. Pakistan has been built against the Mullah. That has been very clear and should be reminded occasionally. The relationship between the same religious movements and parties and the Pakistani establishment. How does it actually work? And why does it work that way? Three, the specific role of the madrasa in this relation. And fourth, the relation the religious party entertains with democracy. So I will start with, as I said, uh, the relation between the, political the, the religious political parties and the state, and how they went from complete opposition to the gradual instrumentalization. I think what most of the movement that we're talking about today, that we see at the big danger of Pakistan, started as revivalist movement, and gradually transformed themselves in political parties through sort of a nationalization process, quote unquote, understood here as the acceptance of the nation state, which they all unanimously refused at the time of independence. Take the Jamal Islami, they refused it. Take the GUI, it was a slightly more complex pr process because they were very much in line with the Congress at the time, but they also, uh, they were against the creation of Pakistan and so on. And this is what we could call this quasi-conversion that has later lost their instrumentalization. So the first, we, we can see four phases in this evolution. The first was a phase of opposition to the creation of the state. Uh, as I just said, most political parties had no agenda at the time of partition and strongly opposed the creation of the state. They believe nationalism was a completely irrational approach. I mean, Maududi was particularly sanguine about that, but he was not the only one. Destroying the deepest link between individuals and dividing humanity between racial groups, establishing linguistic barriers, and delimiting artificial geographical borders. For him, for example, the, uh, as well as his successor, the nation state is a secular notion without the attributes of justice and infallibility uh, that ends the risk of tyranny and war. And through a different approach, the Jamal Ulema Islam, the current more important uh, component of the MMA, uh, they opposed British imperialism and cooperated, as I just said, with the Indian Congress, but opposed the creation of Pakistan. All of them rejected a Western conception of the state in which the later is sovereign and signed to bills, into laws, bills voted by elected assemblies, as opposed, of course, to the divine law revealed by God. So all did consider nationalism a Western concept, dividing the Muslim world and used for the promotion of imperialism. This is something which is extremely important today when we want to understand also their opposition 
to, um, let's say, American presence in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or whatever, because this anti-imperialism element has been there from the very beginning and it's just resurgent today. Ultimately, they joined a new state. I mean, not because of any ideological evolution, but due to their real, real pragmatism. I mean, they understood very quickly that Pakistan was inexistent and they could expect exer exercising any significant influence only by playing the political game and accepting its dynamics. But it is also during this period that gradually we've seen the base of the Islamic State being, uh, being defined. It is during that period that gradually the, uh, the religious succeeded in having the Islamic character of the Pakistani state written in the constitution. But in fact, the concept, the concept of the sovereign state prevailed. So it was essentially a, a cosmetic uh, compromise with the Mullahs, where all the institutions are still today a compromise between modernist uh, institution and uh, traditionalist conception of the rule of the society. The word Sharia, for example, was avoided from the very beginning, and no mechanism was created to adapt uh, existing law to Islamic principle. So concession to the religious were essentially symbolic. The second phase, the second phase, was a phase of accommodation. Uh, and it was a progressive entry into the political game, a conversion to the nation state. I mean, with all the rhetoric and ideological contortions that you could imagine. Uh, it is during that same period which ended, let's say, in 65, date at which all the political parties, all the, what was essentially political movements became political parties. It was during that period uh, that they gradually, from association, became parties, contradicting their previous statements and according to which there could be no political parties in an Islamic state, the political truth of necessarily divine essence being necessary one and one only. Then started the third phase, and this third phase was the phase of rivalry with the army, uh, in particular under Ayubran. Uh, it is during a youth presidency that the Consultative Council for Islamic Ideology was created. But interestingly, its role was essentially to legitimize national policies in religious terms through a modernist reinterpretation of Islam. At the same time, he was very clear that whatever education the, uh, the movement I was referring to were providing was, totally, uh, was considered totally anti-modernist. Unlike what we have seen under Musharraf, for example, madrasa degrees were not recognized as the equivalent of university degrees. And people coming out of madrasa were considered most of the time for what they are. This is quasi-illiterate people. The last phase, which started, let's say, with the Afghan war, was a phase of cooperation with the army. I mean, this cooperation, as you've seen, resulted from the gradual evolution of the Islamic parties themselves, but also from the willingness of Ziaullah to cop them in order to play a role in, uh, in Afghanistan in particular, and later on in uh, Kashmir. Since the Afghan war was conducted, I mean, the Afghan revolution was atheist, then the resistance had to be religious. Therefore, using 
the Islamist in this game was particularly useful. There was a second objective, which was that what Ziaulak expected from the Islamists was the possibility to transcend ethnic division in Afghanistan with something, with a sort of a uniting ideology. That's why he used them as the choice of the parties and the resistance that we've seen later. The second phase of my presentation is dealing with the religious parties and the establishment. How does it work? As I said, the, the main phase was the last one, the accession of power of Ziaulak, not because of Islamization policy. I mean, there was only a difference of degree between the actual policies pursued by Ziaulak and the policy pursued before him by Bhutto. Although Bhutto did it much under uh, the pressure of the street by, uh, and, tr and tried to use Islamic policy in order to get additional legitimacy Interestingly enough, that he didn't really need, as the election proved. But the main difference was in the corruption of the religious leaders by the Pakistani dictators. As I said, this is under Bhutto that the Islamization process started. Following the 1971 defeat, the elected prime minister tried to promote an Islamic and supposedly Middle Eastern Pakistani identity through a rhetoric mixing pan-Islamism socialism, nationalism, and populism. I mean, which means that at the same time, ideology didn't matter very much. It was essentially a Pac uh, power game Pakistani style. Religious parties totally marginalized during the 70s election receive a low role largely disproportionate comparing to their real representativity, in particular in the writing of the constitution. It is in 73 that the World Islamic Republic, which has been eliminated by Ayub, was reintroduced by, uh, by Bito. There was absolutely no need to do so at the time. Again, the Islamization process was felt much less at the constitutional than at the political level. In an attempt to get himself some Islamic legitimacy, in order to strengthen Pakistan's position abroad, in particular in organizations such as the Islamic Organization Conference, and domestically to reinsure part of the economic elite, especially this uh, small bourgeoisie which were feeling uh, increasingly insecure due, his, due to his socialist rhetoric, uh, he made unprecedented concession to, the, uh, to their religious. As early as 74, in 74 he was not politically in trouble. Uh, Ahmadis were declared non-Muslims. The Ahmadis, were, well, everybody knows what an Ahmadi is. Uh, this is a particular sect of Islam which doesn't believe in the finality, finality of the prophecy of Muhammad. I mean, that is that other prophets can come afterwards. So they are considered heretical by many uh, as a Muslims. But they do see themselves as Muslims. And as a concession to the religious parties in 1974, they were declared uh, non-Muslim and given, of course, a distinct right from uh, the Muslim majority. But because the PPP was considered by the middle class as anti-Islamic, as anti-bourgeois, I mean, Bhutto made all this concession. For part of the middle class, Pakistan had been created to ensure Islam position in South Asia, not to become the next uh, socialist paradise. So during the 77 election, which led to his fall, although he didn't actually, uh, and it led to his fall because he rigged it, not because he, <coughs> he, not because he lost it, 
uh, Bhutto mobilized against him all religious party with social class was essentially this lower middle class. This is very much so today again in, if you look at the social composition of parties like the Jamal Islami or even to a large extent the Jamal uh, Ulema Islami although the later one is probably uh, let's say a more popular uh, party than the Jamal Islami is. And during the election themselves Bhutto went as far as declaring the Sharia the law of the country. Uh, totally unsuccessfully he didn't uh, get any more legitimacy through that. And as a matter of fact, Zia that we tend to blame for the Islamization policy, and probably rightly so, I mean, did follow the same pattern on a much larger scale, but the big difference was that it did co-opt, uh, it did co-opt religious leader in order to strengthen his regime. But I mean, I think that the best uh, definition of what has been, what happened at that time was what Kepel described as uh, in his book on Jihad, Islamization did associate religious bourgeoisie and Islamist intellectual to a system where the leading elites represented by the military hierarchy remain in place and to dissuade popular masses from revolting in the name of Allah. I would say that this is a very accurate description of what we have seen in Pakistan and this is still the case today. From that rather than from any other uh, reason, you can derive a set of policy which have left Pakistan in the situation that we see now, starting, of course, with education. But I'll speak to that a little later. What was this policy? I mean, the relation that uh, Zia established with the religious leader was made of three things. First of all, promotion of Islamic symbols. Promotion of Islamic symbols was extremely important. Why? Because there is a strong difference between the popular religiosity and the political projects of a religious party, where they can meet is precisely the religious symbols. I mean, if you observe each and every uh, major event where the, uh, the religious party play a role in Pakistan, they always mobilize in a religious symbol. When it comes to actual policy, this is a totally different story. And their follow-up is much lower. Second element, the corruption of religious leaders. Third element, the instrumentalization of their movements in favor of the power in place. This is, for example, under Ziaullah that Jamal Islami uh, entered government. He stayed for a very short period of time, nine months, but ultimately it got, uh, it got through that participation the kind of respectability which is associated to uh, the participation in power. Later on, especially uh, starting from the, the late 80s, late 70s, sorry, but until the, the end of the, the 90s, we have had those religious parties associated gradually to what we, uh, to uh, events in the, in the subcontinent, I'm referring of course to Afghanistan, and later at the end of the 80s in Kashmir. And the fact is, this has led to a very strange situation which is extremely useful for the military power today in Pakistan. I mean, today, the religious parties are no more in the country than a part of the institutional opposition. There is a in Pakistan, like everywhere else, a polarization between a modernist elite, civilian and military, which control the state apparatus, on the one side, and the religious pressure groups. Although one cannot characterize the religious as purely uh, anti-progressist. The Jamal Islami, for example, 
has a strong progressive tradition on some aspect of it, although is some other aspect of the ideology can be uh, can be characterized as reactionary, and in some aspect of it are definitely uh, definitely progressist. But the polarization opposes less to radically antagonistic value system rather than a structure the struggle for power. And this is an important aspect to keep in mind. What I'm trying to say here is that the ideology, as time goes on, the ideology per se matters less and less. And this is also something that we tend to forget or we tend to overcome. Not that the ideology doesn't exist, not that the ideology doesn't play a role, but less, uh, less so and at the expense of more traditional state manipulation. This process generates in terms a number of consequences. First of all, a real evolution of the religious discourse itself. I mean, the people who, who looked at some of the websites of the Islamic parties right after 9-11, did, they, they saw that religious parties were condemning the <laughs> rapprochement between Musharraf Pakistan and the US, not on religious grounds at all, but because they were alienating traditional friends of Pakistan, such as Iran and China. So we are far away from an ideological view of, uh, of the world. Not that it's not rationalized also in religious terms, but I mean, there is sort of a nationalization of the ideology. And I think this is also an important factor to take in consideration when we look at what's going on today. At the same time, they can be extremely useful for uh, the power uh, because they tend to channel part of the popular resentment whenever there is some in politically acceptable form. Whoever was in Pakistan, for example, during the last Iraq war could notice that. I mean, everybody expected the country to go in flame, the security to in insecurity to increase and so on and so forth. In practice, what happened was exactly the opposite. And th there was not a single sectarian incident in Pakistan during the war in 2003. What we've seen is the word spread, starting from Musharraf, through the religious party, up to the most extremist movements, such as the Lashkar-e Toiba, for example, that Pakistan was the typical example of a state, nuclear state supporting extremism that could become the next target. Because of this, this was really up to the very end of the network and nothing happened. Everybody kept quiet by fear of being the next target. And that's the kind of word that we could hear in 2003 in Pakistan during the war. So, and incidentally, that is also very telling about the nature of the relationship between the power and the extremists in the country. Well, that says a lot about what's actually going on, whereas this is a society or this is something else. At the same time, you've seen the religious party organize big demonstrations against the war, totally organized, totally controlled, not a single death, not a single incident in different parties of the country, the famous Million March. I mean, that means what? That means that essentially they play in favor of the establishment. But, and I will come to my third point, the education system and the madrasa in particular. I mean, it doesn't mean that those parties do not have a margin for autonomy. 
uh, especially in places where the state is either incapable or willing to fulfill some duty. And I'm referring, of course, here to education. The madrasa system that we've seen, I mean, which has become such a fashionable to talk about here in, in the state, is not a new phenomenon in, in Pakistan. Of course, it attracted much more attention after 9-11. But in the country itself, there have always been an object of controversy starting from the day of independence, or at least for the last three years. Uh, and I'm not planning to rewrite history here. I mean, they did not emerge with the creation of Pakistan. I will simply indicate some phase of their development. From 60 to 71, uh, no, prior to 71, there were just a few, a few dozen. From 60 to 71, the number increased only by a figure of 482. Well, if you speak of a country, there are more than 100 million people at the time. This is quite reasonable. But this growth rate more than doubled between 71 and 79 under uh, Bhutto. 852 were created during that period. And while all of the education system had been nationalized, madrasa remained autonomous. Bhutto even tried to cop them by proposing the equivalence between their diploma and those of the public sector, which is exactly what our good friend Musharraf is doing now. It is, however, interesting to note that it was refused by the religious leaders themselves, although the, re the, the measure became effective later on under Ziaulak against, you know, uh, political network and private networks prevail over ideology. What Bhutto was proposing was exactly the same thing which has been done after, was refused by the one on the one side, accepted a few years later. I mean, madrasa do fulfill a number of social functions indispensable in any Muslim society. They train the clergy, they do a number of things, I mean, immediate conflict, divorce, heritage, and so on and so forth. Uh, and they do partly also, it has to be recognized for state failure, again, in, in some particular aspect, uh, education, so on and so forth. I mean, the fact that many of them are just popular is just because they provide food accommodation and sometimes even clothing to a number of deprived families. This is something extremely significant. They constitute a problem only, mar I mean, on the violence aspect, only marginally, partly because they feed the sectarian violence. This is undoubtedly, undoubtable, especially since you see that the majority of them are Dilbandi, therefore extremely intolerant, and so on. Uh, but I mean, this in itself doesn't explain the sectarian violence in Pakistan. Uh, which was fed largely by uh, the Iran-Iraq conflict, by the, the Afghan war, and so on and so forth. So we are say do have a role in uh, the violence in the country. They do have a role also in uh, uh, feeding the networks for jihad elsewhere and, and in the other part of the subcontinent. But this is not really the main problem. Where really they have played a significant role is in the social sphere. And it's important to speak of the social role, the social dimension of the madrasa, not only because of the origin of the students. I was just mentioning that many of them came, many students came from the most deprived segment of society, that uh, the teaching which the, that they were providing food accommodation, clothing, and which was an important element of their success. But more importantly, the effect, the impact that they have on those people 
is uh, particularly worthwhile considering. Because the, the teaching which consists essentially in the reading, memorization, and recitation of sacred text increases the uh, marginalization of individuals already marginalized. I mean, the skills they acquired in madrasa are absolutely useless and unsellable on the job market. <coughs> meaning that those people can be re-employed only by the religious networks themselves. If you add to that the fact that a number of students drop out during the 14 uh, years that any decent edu madrasa education is supposed to provide, you've got a good idea of what it does, uh, of the impact it can have on society. If you are on top of that, that the education provided by the madrasa made the student permeable to all propaganda uh, likely to justify their existence. And this, of course, as I did earlier, raised the question of the rapport of violence. But uh, again, this is certainly not systematic. The ICG, I know the report has been lightly contested, but the ICG said only that 10 to 15% of madrasas were involved in violence. I think more than the figure is the fact that if the Pakistani state wants to identify the violent madrasa, the one who prepares for jihad, the one who prepares for sectarian violence, it's extremely easy. Most of the, the madrasa who do that are already identified or if they are not, can easily be identified. So their real role is, no, is not there. This is not really the issue. The issue is, as I said before, that they are making sure that no alternative project, no alternative society project from, can emerge from them. So we have, on the one side, a public education system which is a total disaster, which promotes a culture of hatred which is as violent and as dangerous as what could be taught in madrasas, you have the madrasa system, and beside that, a tiny elite will get a proper formal education. Who we'll go to Lamps, who we'll go to Nas, who we'll end up in Stanford and go back and speak about moderate enlightenment in their country. And this is, of course, a totally different story, because there you see a conversion of interest between three major groups the landlords, the military, and the mullahs, the mullahs being the least and last element of this, the chain, and ultimately also benefiting largely from the kind of situation that I was describing. And the fact is, with that kind of situation, it's very unlikely that it may affect the functioning of the regime. On the contrary, it does reinforce it. This is also an impact of uh, Islamization. The last thing I would like to speak before coming to a conclusion is the 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 ambiguous rela uh, relation that the polit uh, religious political parties entertains with democracy. And I think it deserves a particular analysis. Because as they became part of the system, this organization acquired a real negotiating power and did or tried to bargain its support for concession in the Islamization program, which inevitably raised the question of precisely their relation to democracy. But the question has to be answered both through a formal and ideological perspective. Why? Because on the one side, the first thing we can observe is that members and leaders of the religious parties in Pakistan have paid a bigger price to justice and democracy than any 
of uh, their political uh, opponent in their fight against dictatorship. This is much so now that has been the case before, under Ayub Khan, under Yahya, then under, even under Zia for a uh, number of them. Moreover, contrary to a number of Islamic movements in the Middle East and Central Asia, they never, never, never uh, denounced democracy and did not try to conquer power by force. Although they did accept and occasionally benefited from military coup. So their relation to democracy is extremely ambiguous. From an ideological point of view, there is no sovereign by God and no other law than Sharia. Politically, however, this is a different story. Sovereignty belongs to all Muslims, to all citizens of the state. Electoral democracy is therefore acceptable only if conditioned to the accept acceptation sorry, of the fundamental principle of Sharia. All religious parties evolve therefore between an ideology which consequences are clearly totalitarian and a strategy which makes democracy not only the main vector of an eventual success, but also the condition of their political survival. I mean, and this permanent tension is best illustrated by the relation that the Jama Islami entertained with Ziaulak, for example. They entered government, I mean, they had, uh, they, they disapproved the coup and had campaign for Islam and democracy. All of a sudden, when Ziaulak proposed to co-op them, they had to choose between Islam and democracy. And this was a totally different story. And they waited for months before getting out of the government. Uh, well, they were partly pushed out of it because they were in no position to provide the kind of answers that Ziaulak were expecting from them. But the fact is, they had been asking for election and asking and asking and asking. And it was constantly postponed by Ziaulak. After nine months, they refused to continue the game and drop out of the government. So there was a real aspiration to democracy. As they became part of the opposition, they had no longer any other possibility anyway than to ask for democracy, because it was the condition of their political survival. And we are still today in that sort of dilemma that they are constantly faced with. The need to support democracy because this is the only condition for the political survival, and sometimes, I must say, for the physical survival as well, at least for some of them. And a democracy which ideologically is you know, acceptable at best under certain conditions which I've never met anyway. You can see the same kind of tensions between the Musharraf government and its present, uh, its present Islamic, uh, I don't know if I should say the position of Islamic supporters, it's probably both at the same time. Uh, this is in the name of democracy that the MMA uh, opposed for a while, the constitutional amendment proposed by General Zaulak under the title LFO, Legal Framework Ordinance, which basically transformed the system from parliamentarian to presidential, with a number of, uh, of other things uh, besides of minor importance. Uh, but after having obtained some concessions elsewhere, they did finally vote the amendment, and Musharraf got the two-third majority he needed to obtain the, those constitutional uh, uh, amendments. It is also thanks to the legitimacy that the MMA obtains through the electoral process that it proposed the imposition of the Sharia and the NWFP. This time it was the dictator who refused as a violation of democracy, and, and it did reinforce... Sorry. Uh, 
I mean, having arrived to power through democracy, no matter how rigged the process was, I mean, proposing Sharia was a result of the constitutional process. Uh, it was a result of a democratic process. When the dictator refused this, uh, the perspective was changed, of course, because refusing Sharia appeared as a, a violation of democracy. So we're constantly now in this sort of process uh, where on the one side they can put a victim of the system when at the same time proposing laws and constitutional amendments which are clearly in violation of democracy. This is also the same dilemma that we are uh, locking ourselves up with the military every time we support them. And this is a big problem in terms of perception of the West by those people and so on and so forth, and perception of democracy as well. Because it seems that there are two standards being applied constantly. Uh, so as a conclusion, I will remind that it's useful to remind the successive attempt to Islamic Pakistan where almost as many failure as there were attempts. But even the process, with perhaps the exception of the Aulak, but even the process initiated by the former dictator was from a legal and constitutional point of view quite limited. It did, however, have an impact on the political life of Pakistan. As one Pakistani author once wrote about the Kashmir, one could say that Islam is not a cause, it's a, armor with, it's a shoe with which you, you hit the head of your opponents whenever you feel like it. I mean, it has no depth within the political uh, discourse, but this is sort of a, an obliged rhetoric that you have to use constantly. Uh, it does give the religious a power that they don't really have. It does give them a power which is not legitimized by their real representativity in the country. And as such, it does create a problem when it comes to a number of, uh, how could I say, uh, pri private matters where the military power finds it extremely convenient to make concession in order to preserve what is absolutely important for it. And that's where the problem is created. Are there really a problem? I mean, the fact is, it's not exaggerated to say that Tiaulak has used this in order to break the political debate. And this is something that has been constantly prolonged by the adversaries. So this is an impact which is not purely ideological, but instrumentalization of the religious into the, in the political debate has largely contributed to the loss of substance by this political debate. I mean, Pakistani politicians were also responsible for it because they have gladly accepted or transformed, let's say, the slogan of uh, politics without parties uh, into uh, parties without policies that was the rule of almost any political party in Pakistan since then. What should I conclude with? That the political, uh, that today, of course, no policy contrary to Islamic principle can be accepted by the polity. Yet, here again, one should distinguish between what can be attributed to Islam as a vector of identity from pure instrumentalization. That's something you see almost every day, especially today in the Fadas and every, play, uh, well, uh, every other place where we see 
the religious movement getting more support than they would actually than they actually would not because people believe what they say but they feel victimized by a position but how could I say that sorry uh, by the fact that they are assimilated to that and therefore victimized as a result of this process it has also an impact on the status of the minorities only Muslim are eligible to certain positions I mean and this is not as bad as one would like to describe. I mean, there are certain positions, such as, at least at the level of joint secretary, where other minorities have access to. But I mean, nevertheless, there is a segregation for certain positions. And this discrimination generates consequences which are not always wanted by the decision makers, such as the persecution of some minorities. I'm referring, of course, to the Ahmadis, occasionally to the Christian, but that's uh, the accident rather than the rule. But no more today than yesterday. Are these movements able to politically threaten the existing and political order or to present it with the least ideological alternative? And in large, large sense, they are, on the contrary, the instrument of the state which use them to legitimize its geopolitical, geopolitical interest or help it uh, bring back in the political mainstream the fraction of the policy which may be tempted by uh, a more radical means of expression. Incidentally, this is probably also the most useful tool that any regime has ever invented to secure U.S. and Western support, whatever it does otherwise. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.